Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And I'm Andrea Cleary. And this is Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture that was important to them when they were young. Our guest today is here to talk about Chris Cornell. It's Carla Malacco. Yes. Welcome to the show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. I think... Uh, Think it's a fine point and it is an interesting person we're gonna we're, we're, we're gonna <laughs> test out that theory but um yes i'm very excited that you have chosen uh, for any listeners who don't know uh carlo is is, uh, is a, a musician um but is also a very very good friend of mine and i've had conversations with you about chris cornell a lot um <laughs> never in a kind of a formal capacity um usually in a very loud pub when it's late at night and I've asked you, please get me into Chris Cornell because I want to understand. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm excited to do it here in the daytime, in the cold light of day, and really hear your thoughts about Chris Cornell. Absolutely. I can be more lucid and less weepy. Yes. In- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, those, yeah, they're, yeah. They, they tend to be very emotional conversations. And then we'll mm. just talk about Elliot Smith and, and we'll both cry. Absolutely. Uh, and, they're, yeah. and they're great nights. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like I, I maintain and we'll make the argument uh, through, through this that... Uh, you know, Chris is a, a, an archetypal soft boy. Yeah. Um, even though he's, you know, he he's, comes across as this, you know, kind of big, imposing, grunge, metally kind of singer. Mm. Um, I think he, I think he's quite an introverted, sensitive songwriter. Which I think, as a grown up, and I've kind of realized, you know, the niche of the way I like to write music and the kind of music that I'm really into now. I can see that as a kind of clear genesis as an entry point to that mm. because it was very kind of uh, I, I would say they're, they're a, starting with Soundgarden like they're a very knowing band they're kind of aware of what they're deconstructing as artists you know they're they're coming at a time where everything is you know hair metal and these kind of you know massive kind of performances and then you've got a band that doesn't look like that except for him mm. do you know what i mean mm. like you know yeah. if, if you can my mental image of him is topless and screaming yeah mm. so um, i'm interested much like a baby much like uh, a baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah so so um to, to give a, a a quick history on on the band i guess um the lineup that everybody is kind of familiar with is the uh bad motor finger onwards lineup which which is is Chris Cornell, Matt Cameron, um, Ben Shepard, and uh, Kim Tile. But they, they started off, for anyone who doesn't know, and anyone who's kind of interested in music history in, in this way, um, they were part of the original six kind of Seattle bands that not really many apart from Soundgarden broke from. Mm-hmm. So there was, there, was a, there was a collection put out that was like a, a kind of like an A and R mixtape that was called Deep Six that came out. I think it was in like I think I wrote it down somewhere, but I think it was like eighty seven, eighty eight. Mm-hmm. Um, that was bands like it was like Malfunction and Skinyard and the U Men uh, and Soundgarden, and it was really like proto grunge. You know the, these kind of acts. Now a lot of these bands kind of cross pollinated. Malfunction became Mother Love Bone with Andrew Wood. Um, and Green River and um, Malfunction and Mother Love Bone became Pearl Jam and you know they all kind of cross-pollinated but Soundgarden were there they were always Soundgarden they were always Soundgarden mm-hmm. now they they had a slightly different lineup there's there's kind of um, there's a, a, a I don't know if it's anachronistic or not but there's a story I always love where the, the original lineup was um, 
um, Hiro Yamamoto, Cornell, um, Kim Tile, um, and uh, apparently, so Cornell started off as the drummer, um, so he was going to drum and sing kind of melodies and such in, in the background because he wasn't he wasn't interested in being a front man to the band. Um, and apparently, like when when he was younger. Um, his family, like his parents split up and his family were quite poor and his mother saw he had an interest in music and bought him a snare drum because that's all they could afford. Oh, yeah. So he started learning how to play music on a snare drum. Wow. Um, but yeah, so he started off as the drummer and apparently in one of their like first practice sessions, uh, um, I don't know if it was in front of people or not, um, the his microphone wasn't working. So he started like screaming from behind the kit and the band were like, we didn't, we didn't know you did that. Mm. You were not doing that and you're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> and then, because like such a, su- su- such a um, instantly recognizable otherworldly sound kind of comes from him, regardless of whether it's kind of your thing or not, it's instantly recognizable and it doesn't sound like anyone else. And mm. um, so, so, so yeah, the, that, that was, that was the, the, the way with them and th- they had such an interesting history in that they were they were one of the first to get like signed to a a, a major label but they were one of the last to break and mm. um, because they they just seemed to they seemed to be kind of unflinching in what they were and what they wanted to be and there's a there's a couple of uh there's a couple of funny anecdotes about that that i'll i'll bring up in 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 the timeline um if i don't run out of oxygen from not taking a <laughs> breath from getting started on talking about this but um they they kind of um th- them and uh, apparently everyone thought that um mother love bone were going to be the massive band mm. and i don't know if you guys are aware of them particularly but um um <laughs> That's, that's that them. always happens. That's, when. <laughs> that's one of their big hits. It was, yeah. yeah. Mother Love Bone did do the thing from Austin Powers. Mm. It's yeah. just so good. <laughs> it's so good, and it's it's stuck around. Yeah, yeah. Really. it's really it's very ahead of its time. It felt timeless. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but um, yeah. So they they were they uh, when I think of Mother Love Bone, it's like imagine imagine a Guns N' Roses that's like really influenced by T Rex or something. Mm. So they, they they have that kind of glam fun to them but they have that kind of edge to them when it was before you know before uh, these bands broke but um chris cornell was roommates with andrew wood who was the lead singer and this becomes an unfortunate kind of um reoccurring theme but you know so these bands are all trying to break and they're all trying to do their thing and uh, the day that mother love bone were releasing their debut record andrew wood overdosed and passed away uh, and that there's um, th- there's an interesting part in the I think it was in the Pearl Jam twenty documentary where they're talking about you know the different kind of tragedies that befell Seattle mm. and and Chris Cornell right, makes the point where he says like oh, a lot of people say like oh you know S- Seattle lost its innocence when Kurt Cobain passed away mm. and he said for the people who'd been around from the start everybody was broken before it even happened because mm-hmm. Andrew Wood was this really loved kind of playful figure in the scene. And then suddenly, you know, um, but that's where, um, that's where Soundgarden then kind of moved and, and um, 
they they released in and around that time bad motor finger and then tempo of the dog so i'm trying to do the fast forward version of this where i don't <laughs> give a review of every record but um <laughs> Y- y- you had an interesting so what year kind of was was their debut so their debut came out in 1988 so it was okay. Ultramigo OK and that was with the original lineup that I, I mentioned there mm. and then they released Louder Than Love in 1989 um, which which has um, the a great example of how they, they seem to be they're a very influential band that I think a lot of artists didn't talk about that much mm. um, because obviously Nirvana were so mm-hmm. ginormous but like um, uh, I remember watching as a um, um, a, a, as a teenager an interview with um, Kirk Hammett from Metallica and they, they were making fun of the fact that the biggest riff that Metallica ever wrote was Enter Sandman and that James Hetfield writes all the riffs and that's Kirk Hammett's one mm. and Kirk Hammett was being interviewed and he was like I was trying to t- tabla at love and he's like, so I was kind of doing it. And then I was like, oh, I kind of fucked it up. But Here's that's Enter Sandman. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And, you know, so kind of massively influential, but not massively popular. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I, I feel like it's sort of rare. Like I, I'm friends with a lot of people who are into music. And I think you're the only person whose favorite band is Soundgarden. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's be- like everyone likes them. Yeah. But it's it's a kind of a because Seattle was what it was, um, and Nirvana is the obvious choice, I guess. And part of that is due to you know tragedy and the sort of the the cult of that tragedy that kind of mm. sprung up around it. Um, and yeah, I I think it's very interesting that it, they. I just haven't met a lot of people who they're, they're their favorite band, but they'll they'll be like their second favorite mm-hmm. or their third favorite yeah. band. When I was you know in school, I mean? like in our friend group, everybody was into Radiohead and Nirvana. Mm. And then there was like a, a subset that were all into Pearl Jam. And then there was like one guy who was into Soundgarden mm. as well as all of them. That's so, Carlo. Yes, so you should meet my friend Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I've always been cool thing adjacent. Yes. Um, so <laughs> if there's a scene. Yeah. Um, so what what was your first introduction to so, this band or so to Chris? This is interesting. I always found this kind of fun um, because I was, um, I, I, I didn't have a lot of, I, I think it's helped growing up in that I've, I've very much my own taste in things, mm. but I didn't have much influence from people when I was younger because apart from my dad, like my older brother was only really into like, kind of hip-hop and stuff like that which i did like but it wasn't like my teenage mm-hmm. projection you know and and so i ended up finding a lot of acts um organically without really having a context of why i was meant to like them do you mm-hmm. know what i mean i think it was why i always felt that my love of soundgarden like i love nirvana i love pearl jam i love Alice in chains um but I always felt it was very organic because basically what happened with me, it, w- it wasn't even Soundgarden, it was Audio Slave. And I was, I think I was maybe 13, I was 13 or 14, and I was in evening study in school. And a friend of mine, a, a guy called Liam Duffy, was like, had like his disc man, mm. and he was like sharing his earphone with stuff. And the, the best music is found that way, like in, in, in evening study. And yeah. 100%. Yeah. And so I got a. I got a panned left <laughs> earphone of uh, of Cochise and he, he had gotten a copy before it had come out online. I think I think it had come out as something like 
civilian like a demo would come out with like eight tracks mm. off the record and like that song starts with that that kind of slapback tomorello mm-hmm. helicopter sound and and, and it, it kind of it felt like this introduction to something and then the second his vocal kicked in i was like holy christ mm. what on earth is this <laughs> like i've never heard this man i do not know what this music is mm. um and I, like i'd been a, at that point i would have been you know i would have known and liked rage but i wouldn't have i wouldn't have been schooled enough to to know kind of a lot of these other more obscure bands like mm. i wouldn't know screaming trees and caius and you know these kind of not cooler but i mean like more off the beaten bit more path obscure and, bands. Yeah. So I, I remember I went the next day with my mom. Uh, I think we went to Scaries or something, and I went into the the music shop in it, and I was like, I was like, I would like whatever the lead singer of Audio Slaves music is. Please give me give me one to two of them. Mm. And the guy behind the counter was essentially our boyfriend from Stranger Things. Oh, and he was like, lovely Eddie. Uh, he was like, yeah, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy he was there for you. Oh. He, he gave me um, uh, Loud Love and Super Unknown. Mm. And um, it was it was from that point on that I was like, oh, I, I, I love this. Like, mm. That was that was my trajectory. So I, I got massively into um, I got massively into Audio Slave and Soundgarden from then uh, kind of retrospectively I remember going up to my friend's house and seeing the video of Cochise for the first time and like the video has all the band coming together and there's like they go to the top of the building and there's like fireworks mm. and um, I'd never seen what Rage looked like because Rage mm. don't have anything on their inlays so I didn't know what they looked like and I didn't know what Chris Cornell looks like oh. And I remember like the video kicks off, whatever. And I was like, this is the most beautiful human being I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, yeah. I believe I'm going to love this man very, very much. Um, he is very beautiful. Was well, well, very beautiful. Strikingly like, very beautiful, beautiful man. man. Yeah. Um, um, did you like them as a teenager, Alan? No, I didn't really know them. Like the Black Hole Sun video was on MTV constantly. Yeah, I even I remember that. Yeah. Like inescapable. And mm. I really liked that. And then the only other song I knew before I started looking into for this was Spoonman. Mm. Because we with my friend Dermot we had a cover band going like for briefly in sixth year, just as a thing to do. Um and we did Spoonman for that. Incredible. Uh, so I was like, oh that's really cool. It doesn't really sound like anything else in their catalogue, Spoonman. Or Black Hole Sun really. No, well these listening see, now for this. The thing that's kind of interesting with Cornell, which I think is is what really drew me to him and, and maintained my interest throughout his career is that they they actively and and him especially um actively kind of subverted expectation mm-hmm. when they seemed to be doing something well mm. so like I, I remember reading apparently when he was very young he had uh, like very very young like i think maybe 12 or 13 he had gotten uh into drugs and someone had given him like lsd and it caused like a um an agoraphobia and like a kind of panic attack kind of thing and i have often wondered once again that could be that's from a a book i read on seattle and you never know what these things and you don't want to say this sort of stuff about someone you don't know but anyway um i wonder if that led to the weird kind of not leaning into what he knew would be massive Mm. every time which is why stuff doesn't tend to you can't go to someone like oh you really like back hole sun you'll love this you know Mm. because it doesn't really it doesn't really match up like that there was a there was an interesting thing with um 
um, going from bad motor finger to temple of the dog to super unknown. Um, so bad motor finger came out just before Nevermind, I believe, like mm. a couple of weeks before Nevermind. And it completely kneecapped itself because they pushed for the lead sing single to be Jesus Christ pose. And, you know, that was about the cult of celebrity and all this sort of stuff. But it had a very kind of shocking video, got banned everywhere. Um, had it not been banned everywhere and they had done what they were asked to do, they probably would have broke much sooner than Super mm. Unknown did. Do you know what I mean? But mm. th that's why people incorrectly remember the timeline. It was like, oh, well, Nirvana, it was like, you know, they were three albums deep at that yeah. point. Mm. And, but, but they, they always seem to do that. And th there was a story about when he did Temple of the Dog, which is, you know, beautiful record for his friend who's died and um, that and a like a, a record label guy had went to him and said like oh we didn't know you could write songs like this because they're very standard rock songs for his way of writing you know mm -hmm. I, I often think that because he started off as a drummer it's probably why his guitar playing is so kind of arrhythmic a bit like um a bit like dave grohl in a way where everything is kind of off beats and odd mm -hmm. like even when you're talking about spoon man like it's hard to get into the groove Oh, it's what's yeah, yeah. being played yeah. because it doesn't kind of keep because he's a drummer, you mm -hmm. know, and that's kind of kind of where it goes. But um, apparently they were like, you know, oh, if you guys write songs like this, you, you know, you will be flying. And he got really frustrated because he was kind of like, oh, we wrote these in like six or seven days because of the thing. But like, this isn't us trying like this. Yeah. You know, th we're trying to do something musically with our records and they're all in crazy, n not that it matters, but, you know, they have they have interesting time signatures and they have interesting tunings and they have all this sort of stuff. And they were kind of being pushed to, if you could be more yeah, straightforward, like it, a, a fun little story is that, you know, the cover of Super Unknown is like, a, a, it's almost like a photo negative of, it's like black mm. and then there's like yeah. a red movement. Apparently the reason for that was they had went in to do a photo shoot and because our beautiful boy is a beautiful boy they had gone like we're going to do the cover i'm going to do a shot of the band and we're going to do the whole thing and he the grunge look was really popular at mm -hmm. the time and he had big long hair and they're like what we're going to do it and apparently he was getting really really uncomfortable through the whole shooting and he like said he was going out for a smoke and he went into the shop next door and he got a shaver and he shaved his head bald and came mm. back in and was like, okay, now you can shoot us because I don't have the thing you're asking for. And they're like, oh shit, we can't use that. And yeah. then they had to pivot. So I think, I think part of it is to get back to your original point. I think the, the reason that stuff in the catalog doesn't tend to match up is that I think he was always striving to reinvent what he was doing. And mm. like, he could have just been, belting out drop D tracks and mm -hmm. everybody would yeah. have loved it. Or ro rock songs that are just, you know, very kind of straightforward in terms of like, this is a direct, there's a direct lineage from country music here. Here is the verse, here is the chorus, here is the, yeah, yeah. here's yeah. the nice guitar bit, here's the guitar solo and so on. It's the opposite to what you two do. Um, I was I recently listened to you talking you two to me again, and the the boys um, make the point that you two will 
do something new and inventive and then they'll do it two more times until <laughs> everybody is sick of it. Yeah. You know, and so they'll do three albums of an idea when they should do one album of, of an idea. Mm. And it sounds as though it's the complete opposite when it comes to him. You know, very, it's just like, I'll just do one song of an idea and then move on well, to something else. Very much so. And I, I think it led to really interesting places like because it, it gave a kind of even though it, it, it wasn't always appreciated or maybe maybe taken into account, I think it, it, it led to really interesting collaborations in, in his career and it, it, read to, it led to really interesting um, um, stylistic changes because like after Soundgarden broke up, I, I still think like Down on the Upside, their last record is one of my favorite records, but it wasn't it wasn't super unknown. It didn't have the kind of hit that, mm -hmm. that people were looking for. So it gets, I think it's another one of those, you know, those like revised records like Samstown where mm. people are like, oh, nobody liked this when it came out. But now when people look back on it, it's a lot of people's favorites. Yeah. yeah. That sort of feel. But, I remember um, when, you were, when we were young came on, on the radio and I was driving with my wife to Dublin a couple of months ago and we'd like shouted every word of it like, oh, did we like this song before i don't remember that yeah. yeah i remember liking that song but then recently my boyfriend kind of ruined it for me because it was on in the house and you know the, <laughs> you know the bit where um and like yeah if you met harry he's a very snarky boy and we love him but um we do he uh the, the bit where it's like um, talks like a gentleman like you imagine when you're young and then the backing vocals go talks like a gentleman <laughs> and he, he just laughed and he was like I could never get over the fact that they put that in that song why did they do that and now whenever I hear it I'm like yeah I do actually think that was a bad decision to do that a friend of mine is a producer and when that came, album came out he was like that album has the worst recorded vocals I've ever heard really yeah, he's like it's they've left so many not not artistic flubs, just flubs oh, in there and stuff. It right. was like he was like, it's a bad recorded album. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, good songs. Yeah, for I, the most part. My, my favorite, my favorite of their records, I'd imagine. Um, yeah. Uh, but but probably similar uh, to to link back to my cool adjacent um, mm. history. It's another situation where it's like I loved the fact that they had a record that the Killers had a record that everybody loved and they could repeatedly continue with mm. and they went nah we're not doing that here's yeah. our record of americana and if you don't like it grand like I, i've always respected that like you know say once again this isn't a, there's a thing when you're younger and i think it kind of you get rid of it when you get to a certain age but it's a strange thing where you kind of put into like camps with the the artist you like mm. and it's like oh well you're into pearl jam you can't like nirvana you're into sanger you can't like yeah Bernie. like you like strokes you can't like the killers all this sort of horseshit and the 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 way that kind of played out with um with Soundgarden and Nirvana say was that people assumed because I liked one band mm -hmm. the other one isn't allowed and you if you say something critical of the band that isn't your favorite it's an attack you know mm -hmm. and it's like I, I always found it strange I look like In Utero is my favorite Nirvana record and people talk about the huge stylistic change and I'm like yes absolutely mm. that is a big stylistic change but i don't understand why you don't extend that same grace to bad motorfinger to super unknown mm. to super unknown to you know what i mean like i don't i don't understand why and i think it's tribalism i mm. think it's like we like when our thing does the thing but yeah. it's not an objective like we just liked our thing <laughs> yeah it feels like they should be in opposition i always remember in the in utero booklet there's a little thing that says we weren't like we weren't the masters the way we wanted to mm. so if you have like um, EQ on your stereo set treble to five and bass to two mm. and 
Soundgarden the opposite of that, where it's the bassiest metal <laughs> you've ever heard. <laughs> There's so much yeah. low end in Soundgarden, so it mm-hmm. feels like they're in direct opposition to each other, just mm-hmm. like sonically. Sonically, so, definitely. Yeah. I, I think I think it's like because like Cornell produced a lot of Alice in Chains records. Like mm. he was very hands on with everything. So. I do think that there's that difference as well that, you know, say, say there's that story that, that goes that, you know, Kurt Cobain when, when um, Nevermind came out was, you know, kind of going into interviews and stuff like that, saying things like, you know, oh, we don't, uh, you know, we don't like Smells Like Teen Spirit or we don't like this, you know, we're getting whatever. But then at the same breath was onto radio stations 24-7, like you need to be playing our songs yeah. all the time. Yeah. Whereas I think... Not to not to be too hero worshipy um, or, or or frame it in that exact opposition, but like Cornell literally didn't want to be spoken to. Like he's yeah. kind of like we made the thing; Don't it's there. Me. Cool. <laughs> just just let me let me let me do my thing. So I think they're in opposition in that way, but people remember it almost in a different way. It's like yeah. well, ours weren't mastered because we're real, you know, whatever. It's like not really. Like you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> fucking master it, then you got all the money yeah. in the world. Um, um but um uh but it does seem that now there is um there's much less tribalism hmm. when it comes to like I, I i think now if somebody told me i i now seattle at that time is its own tribe as, yeah. as opposed to yes. there being like different things within it which is interesting because you know at 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 the time it was or at the time when we were teenagers mm. like it was that kind of thing of like well which is the best one which which yeah. camp are you choosing what Whereas most now it's music's just like, yeah <laughs> it, also it, you, you you only buy a certain number of cds so you that's also exactly true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so so you have to kind of double down and be like oh well i don't own any nirvana cds because i don't like them actually mm. and it's just like no i just don't have enough pocket money and i don't have a saturday job yet and it's like um like new york in in the early 2000s as well it's yeah. like there was we're starting to move away from that kind of like you can only like one band. Yeah, because everything's open to you yeah. all the time, which is which has really leveled the playing field in a. In yeah. A, there, there was one thing, and I, I don't know if um, I don't know if you guys have any experience with this, but um, so I saw I saw Cornell and thankfully in pretty much all of his different um, um, abstractions. I saw him solo maybe five or six times. I saw Audio Save twice. I saw Soundgarden once. And he seemed to have the worst fans, like mm. the worst people. And I never really understood. And it, it, the sour taste that came in my mouth was from one gig in particular. I went to see a gig in, um, I went to see a gig in the Olympia. And it was, I think it was the first time I was seeing him solo. And I was, you know, crazy, crazy excited. Um, I actually got to meet him afterwards, oh, which uh, I'll, I'll tell you a bit. But yeah. um, I, I was really, really excited to see the gig. And um, he had... Uh, he had a real kind of like he was very funny and he was very affable but he had a real kind of sadness about him and his stage setup was strange he had like he had like a phone on his stage and a record player and a load of guitars and he kind of he kind of talked his way through parts of the show and it was a weird kind of um history of a lot of the grief that kind of surrounded his music and like he talked about he talks at one point about the phone being on the stage, and uh, he, he was saying that um, he was uh, he was really good friends with Jeff Buckley, um, and that 
he was working on a solo album when Jeff Buckley passed away mm -hmm. and he always wanted to tour solo but he didn't have the confidence to do it so he didn't really tour solo until after Audio Slave like I think he'd done a couple of Euphoria Morning shows but it was never really a thing mm -hmm. and Jeff Buckley was really encouraging him you know what I mean he'd be ringing him up and he'd be like you know you should do this like you'd, you'd love this you know it would work um, and when he passed away uh, he went to his funeral his mom brought down his phone and said, oh, he used to ring you on this, so I'd like you to have it if you ever want to talk to him. Oh, wow. So he was like, oh, I was nervous going on tour, so I brought the phone with me, so at least he can hear it. And I was like, oh, that's really that's amazing. sweet. Yeah. And then he went to sing a song called When I'm Down off Euphoria Morning that um, a phenomenal talent, um, uh, why can I not? Uh, I always mispronounce uh, this lady's name. Um, she was the 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 um she was the lead singer and keyboard player in Eleven, and she was in Queens of the Stone Age for one of their records. Uh, I don't know if it's if it's an, I don't know if it's Natalia Schneider. Uh, anyway, f phenomenal piano player and, and singer. Um, and she N Natasha Schneider, I think that's her name. Yeah. So apologies to any historians that are listening. <laughs> um, but unbelievable uh, player. And um, she played piano on the record and he didn't want to be using anyone else playing her music. Mm. So he got the original masters of the record pressed to vinyl of her piano take and he would sing over her playing on, oh, on vinyl lovely. on stage, which, you know, was a little thing to her. And he finishes, he finishes this song. It's beautiful songs, whatever. And a guy starts shouting from the crowd to play something from Temple of the Dog. Mm. And in my head, I'm just like, he's, he's, he's very high on the dead friends list of songs. Like, give the guy a break. Yeah. Like, you know, he's doing his thing. And your man's like screaming, shouting, and he kind of goes like, oh, listen, I'll, you know, I'll try to fit it in. I'll get to it. And your man shouts up like, do you even care about Andrew Wood at all? And I was <gasps> like, and you could just see just, the, just, just kind of crestfallen. And he just oh. kind of picks up his guitar and he plays another song. And I'm like, what a weird, uh, mm. uh, fan, like a, what a weird fan interaction to, to have. But it, it made me probably incorrectly, may, maybe, maybe the fan base in general are, you know, very welcoming and, and open. But I was like, has he had to like deal with this sort of like justify yeah. yourself and play why, these sort of Why things? are you playing this song about this dead friend and not this other dead friend? Yeah. Because the other dead friend is my favourite of your dead friends. Yeah. So because the Temple of the Dog album was kind of a secret. Yeah. When we were growing up, it was like, if you knew a Temple of the Dog, you were like, super were Seattle. Yeah. Okay. And it was yeah. very hard to find. So yeah. Yeah. obviously this guy has built most of his personality around knowing the Oh, the dog yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, that yeah. aspect as well. It's like, oh, well, I know your obscure dead friend. Oh, yeah. what? God. That's... This really grim. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I remember just being like, what is this? Yeah. Like, who, who goes to someone's show? But um, to, to give, a, to give a, a, a small anecdote about that. So um, when the gig finished, um, Ashling, my wife, was like, uh, oh, let's not go out this way. Let's, let's go out this way instead. And as with most things, I just was like, she's probably right. I'll follow her whatever direction <laughs> she's walking <laughs> she in. She is usually right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we kind of went in a side door and um you know we're in a little stairwell and she closes the door and she's like she's like okay now don't freak out you're going to pretend you're with the label and i've got you backstage at the gig to you know to meet cornell so i was like it's cool it's fine it's cool. Cool, 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 cool no doubt no doubt no doubt it's fine um so anyway um we go up and he's um he's being very you know uh, friendly chatting with people and this that, and the other he's, he's there with his wife 
and um and you're like i'm here with my wife (laughs) we're just we're practically the (laughs) same same. Um, (laughs) have you noticed how less attractive i am um but but yeah so we're kind of standing there and i'm i'm like you know i'm I'm very much following the rule of thumb that i'm like okay this is on ashling's good graces that i'm here Mm -hmm. don't you know don't don't whatever and this journalist i don't know who they wrote for or who they were comes up and has clearly done no no research, no no prep for anything. And they start like chatting to him and you know, he's he's being friendly and I'm kind of on the outskirts of of listening to this and he says something along the lines of I'm like, you know, oh how many pints have you had since you got here? And mm. he's like, Ah oh, no, yeah, I've been having a good time. I got here. Mm. And he was like, I'll go, I'll go get you some more. You know, you can't be in Ireland if you don't whatever. And I was kind of like I, this guy's like a recovering addict and yeah. he's sober the past 10 years is probably a bit awkward mm-hmm. and I kind of cut in and I was like um, I was like I, I saw a thing in the news a couple of days ago. you get some award from some charity because you would like raise loads of awareness for sobriety and you <laughs> give money and stuff like that like you know congrats and he was like yes absolutely <laughs> thank, thank you thank you very much and he went do you have a question and I was like uh, uh, and I kind of, <laughs> I, I kind of stopped, and I went, I went. Okay, so you're after hammering out this gig for like two and a half hours. You seem to be able to speak like a human being still. Mm. I was like, you're here with your beautiful family, and I was like, I got to know what you did with the third wish from the genie. <laughs> um, and uh, he just kind of laughed, and we were we were kind of, and he kind of went, I don't really want to talk to this gentleman anymore. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, it's now my mission um, in life to find out who that journalist yeah. is. Yeah. Um, but we, we had a nice chat and we ended up talking to the gig and I, I started talking, like I really started kind of honing in on the singing part of it because like I had tried to sing, like I, I don't sing anything in that style, but I, I, you know, as a young person, I'd always try to say I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And he, he told me two things that I thought were really interesting. W- one thing he said was that... Um, he had picked up such a diversity in his voice because when he was younger, one of the few things they had was like a Beatles collection, mm. but he didn't know there was multiple vocalists. Mm. So he just assumed you were meant to be able to do everything. He thought, so all, he thought, he thought all the Beatles were the, the, yeah, oh, the one person. So he had oh. kind of been like, oh, there's a singer. Like, he was only a kid, but that's yeah, how that's really sweet. he got around to it. And then uh, I was like, um, I was like, okay, right. Then what do you do when you have to do particularly tough bits? And I always remember the line he said, it was like, the secret is to try not to worry about what's coming up and take a deep breath before the hard parts. Mm. And I was, I thought about that a lot after he'd passed away mm. because I was like, that's just a beautiful way to approach life. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, don't, yeah. don't worry too much about it and take a deep breath before the hard parts. But it was just an absolute sweetheart for this mega, you know, people say you'll meet people and they might be unassuming, but it was ridiculous that seems like, like a, a dream hero attraction yes yeah i never wanted to meet him again I, yeah. it was yeah. like it's done i was like we're out game over it's, yeah. it's done yeah i've absolutely like no interest in meeting my heroes like mm-hmm. I, I i can't i, I, I just met alan and that was done was well it? that's <laughs> it but i mean like i interviewed rufus wainwright recently amazing and like i wouldn't say that he was like one of my heroes necessarily but like i'm a really big fan mm-hmm. and like it, it, it was like a, a phone conversation and I felt I felt happy that like so I was talking to Sarah beforehand um who he is one of her heroes and she she was like oh my god oh my god and I was like do you have any questions for him like he was mm-hmm. starting you want you want me to bring up and she was like okay just give me a few minutes and then I was like 
trying to imagine what it would be like to meet somebody with that level of you know mm-hmm. fandom and excitement and stuff and I was like I just don't know like who it would be or like with my father John Misty I'd just be like I just wouldn't be able to speak and I'd be so afraid that I would fuck it up that I'm so happy that you had this interaction and it's just like it, it's this one thing in a bubble never have to do it again yeah and it went well and it's like yeah those things are because you can meet people and they yeah. can be busy or tired or it's not their fault mm-hmm. like if he was slightly rude to you at all wouldn't be on wouldn't him be completely no. understandable he's tired he's got this journalist trying to get him to break his sobriety like yeah <laughs> you know he could have been an asshole but he wasn't and that's yeah that's like and it sounds like he was doing like a very like considered a kind of intellectual kind of solo show yeah which i'm surprised i didn't know he like approached i think theatrically that way oh like yeah, yeah absolutely like th- there was there was a strange amount of kind of so say the, the different um all of his different acts seemed to approach the uh theatrics differently mm-hmm. so say i remember uh i think maybe it was 15 or 16 one of my first proper gigs by myself i, I went to see audio slave mm-hmm. um in the point and it was their first irish gig um and it was really strange because it was it's still one of the best gigs i've ever gone to because it was weird to see four established superstars mm-hmm. feeling on the back foot to a crowd full of people so there was a real like oh they had to prove that they were worth being there because everybody there was oh this is that band that's worse than these two other bands yeah Mm. um but their stuff was really you know the gig was really kind of um you know it was kind of there was a not a light show but everything was um um kind of bright strobes and and things like it was kind of a it was like a a, visual element there's a visual element to it and then when i saw soundgarden they had literally nothing Mm. like there was bright there was four bright lights that shone on the stage with a backdrop because Mm -hmm. soundgarden aren't dicking around and that's how their approach has always been you know what i mean yeah whereas his solo stuff he's he, he was so into kind of interacting with people and like he'd play he'd play cover songs and he'd kind of give like histories of why he was playing them he he finished with like a looped well he, he finished with imagine which is a, a cardinal sin for me i don't think anyone should ever cover imagine <laughs> yeah. i think it's 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 a bad choice but he to my mind as i've retconned the history he finished with a day in the life where he was looping all the wow. the parts and like kind of detuning the guitars for for um the kind of outro and yeah. kind of switching and it was that was you know there was a real closure to mm. to to the set, but you got these cool insights where he seemed to be really happy to just talk about music and mm. talk about the framing of the gig of why it was going to be the way it was and what it was trying to achieve. He was a much more intellectual frontman than I think a lot of people would consider. You know, a wailing, mm. gorgeous rock god to be. You know, you're expecting a twisted sister or something yeah. kind of interaction it seems more in the line of a jeff buckley or a rufus wainwright yeah sure. one thing that struck me listening to some of this stuff for the first time this week there was one song in particular on the playlist you gave us something love loud love maybe that song? yeah where i was like oh this is jeff when jeff buckley goes distorted and loud he's doing chris cornell mm. yes 
That's exactly where Jeff Buckley got that from. A hundred percent. And the, the lovely kind of handshake back to that mm. is, I'm not sure if I put it on the playlist, but there's a track called Wave Goodbye on Euphoria Morning, um, which he wrote for Jeff Buckley after he'd passed away. And he plays guitar and sings on it in the style of Jeff Buckley. Mm. And it's a really lovely kind of circle. And I didn't know this for years because it doesn't say, this is my Jeff Buckley song. Yeah. Like, he doesn't do that with the song similar with Temple of the Dog. Like it's not overt if you don't know what it is. You just think it's a good mm. song. Mm. But yeah, I think there's a lot of that DNA of of kind of, especially with his solo stuff and with Loud Love. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that there. Um, with that kind of sharp Telecaster sound and 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 distortion and and yeah um i would completely agree on, on that one because he actually matches the the little funny thing at the start of that is the the song starts off with uh with feedback from kim tile mm-hmm. and then they they blend the mix of the feedback with his vocal hitting the same note as the feedback coming mm-hmm. in as the it's a pure jeff buckley trick yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know but it was you know how many years before mm. like it, it, it's it's totally cross-pollination there of, yeah. of, of, of it, it. Mm. even there's a, a a way he does vowels in that song and it's like that's like if you ever hear a live version of eternal life mm. it's exactly the same whenever he like holds oh, a note there it's really that. cool yeah, yeah. I, but there's things that like you you might be able to explain this better than me because uh, i was only reading about it recently um but apparently as a way of singing he, he he, he had a thing that, that they, they refer to it online as like uh, belting like not like I know that sounds like something an Irish person would say about mm-hmm. him just knocking it out but it's a particular kind of way of singing well Fergal is, um, is our professional, professional singer, singer oh. so he, he might be able to tell us yeah like belting is just I suppose kind of like controlled shouting yeah I'll, <laughs> I'll belt to the mic yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like controlled shouting I yeah. suppose it's mostly used in musical theatre. And, and yeah. they, they, they talk about how different it is for a vocalist to not, like for, for like a rock singer or a grunge singer or whatever, to not, you know, that it's not going into like a falsetto or it's a different kind of thing. Mm. And that isn't something that, you know, you just kind of do unawares. Like mm. it, 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 there was a lot of thought put behind how he would vocally deliver things. Mm-hmm. Um, he especially had the chance to do an audio slave because it was the point where he didn't have to write the music. He only wrote little bits of music for them, which ironically ended up being all the bits that I really loved. Um, <laughs> but like there's there's a great story of um, I think it's I think it's Show Me How to Live. It's one of the, one of the one of the first tracks on it where there's a bit where the band come in with the intro and he comes in with a kind of the it kind of drops to like a Rage Against the Machine, just breakbeat kind of thing coming in. And he comes in with this kind of, and kind of leads it in. And apparently it was from the first take of when the band were trying and like Rick Rubin was behind Mm. the stage and nobody really knew if it was going to work. And he kind of just stepped up to the microphone, did that. And everybody was like, this is going to be class. (laughs) You know, just that this kind of little vocal line of him tuning into the frequency of what a Rage song would sound like with him. But I... I think yeah, I think he very much used his 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 voice, much like Jeff Buckley, who also was like a virtual also a guitar player, and mm-hmm. which is something people don't think of with Cornell. But like those riffs that playing like Black Hole Sun, he recorded every instrument for 
on a oh, four really? track mm-hmm. at home and brought it into the band. And he described it as like, he's like, oh, the song was done. I had the drums, bass and everything. It was just bad. And they made it yeah. brilliant. Yeah, mm. dude, here, here it is, but do it good. Yeah. yeah, you know. But I mean, his vocals, he, he has to have one of the most mimicked um, styles. Yeah. You know, like people that... I, I think part of the reason why I never got into him is because I didn't like the bands that tried to sound like him yeah. and that's very unfair on him it's, and it, I'm sorry <laughs> it's, it, it, it's my new metal Fate No More problem mm. it's like I adore Fate No More mm. and then I remember every band that came out yeah. after Fate No More I was like this is the bad version of the thing I like yeah, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's so unfair because just... there could be phenomenal acts in there yeah. I'm sure Dave Hanratty is screaming at me from somewhere <laughs> but like I'm sure there's good stuff there but I for me it sounded reductive mm. to the thing I love and if you've only heard the reduction yes. you're like why am I going to go backwards yeah. to what yeah. this is like imagine not listening to punk because you heard pop punk like, yeah. <laughs> and didn't like pop punk you know like well, I think first you'd be a war criminal you, for not like, liking you, pop you, punk you, like you you'd know you'd be crazy because pop punk is awesome <laughs> but like but yeah I think I think that that's it, 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 it there, there was such a saturation of that particular vocal style with men in bands um in the late 90s mm. th- 2000s and it, it's just it's a tone that i don't i don't tend to love because i i think i prefer singers that um sort of pretend they can't sing a bit like julian casablancas uh. like, like with julian casablancas it, it, it's like he's he's accidentally singing um <laughs> because he doesn't know what else to do with the words whereas the performance aspect of singers like Chris Cornell uh, that belting thing which Fer- Fer- Fergo mentioned is, is is used a lot in musical theatre maybe there was a bit too much theatre in it or there was a mm. bit too much like show offiness of it yeah. but listening to Chris in the playlist that you that you gave us um I was really struck by how he sounds when he's not doing the big notes yeah and that sort of um that that accidental singing that sort of just um bits where like he's it's like it, it, he could be humming it or it's it's just it's a very kind of low um small outpouring as yeah. opposed to the big moments i think his voice is so beautiful in those moments and i think i just didn't pay attention to that because i knew that he was this kind of you know big vocalist at the same time and i wrongly thought that that was maybe kind of all he was doing with his mm. voice but there's so much more in terms of the dynamics of his vocals like he's very controlled he is like he sings like a trained singer um yeah. which is amazing you know and considering how mimicked he is by other people you know like probably would have been a good idea for me to <laughs> wonder like why is that <laughs> andrea it's, like it's, yeah it's a funny thing i always noticed growing up like it's it's so um refreshing to hear that you guys covered a soundgarden song but um mm. they were like a band that were you know say very popular but there was no Soundgarden cover bands and I don't think it was a popularity thing I think it's that they're so difficult in every facet mm-hmm. to do their stuff mm. they're like, long songs you need like four guitars to have all the tunings yeah. covered and yeah and, yeah. and like you need everyone to be very very good because mm-hmm. there's no like M- Matt Cameron as a drummer is like I think he's one of the great rock drummers of of all time like you know he's since moved to Pearl Jam where I think he has less agency over what he's doing mm. you know because they're a different thing but like especially at Soundgarden where he was uh, at free reign to do whatever he wants phenomenal Ben Shepard is is an incredible 
incredible bass player. Um, and Kim Kim Tile is 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 like even from the contributions he has to like the presence of the USA and like he, he's such an uh, a, everyone was so unique and difficult to mimic. Mm. The idea that you would get a group of people mm. that could come in and mimic each part is like uh, it's just never going to happen. And it's and like Radiohead, except for yeah. Ed O'Brien. <laughs> if you take out of, out of Radiohead, you're like, oh yeah, wow, all of these people are very individual. And <laughs> you, you can play Ed's bits. That's true. I mean, that's true. You, know. you need a very expensive rig to do Ed's bits, though. That's yeah, true. You need yeah. a lot of stuff. Oh, he's got that mad signature. Have you seen that? His signature guitar with the sustaining pickup. Yeah. yeah. Does infinite sustain? Yeah. I really want one of those. I know. They're yeah. the left unfortunately. And, and if you got it, yeah. you, you could play it and sound like him. It's the thing. True. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, sure. it, whereas <laughs> if, if you walked into Johnny's, like, uh, all his stuff, you'd be like, uh, no, I don't no. know what to do with any of this. Is that technically still a guitar? Like, <laughs> what is that? Is that a computer? Yeah. There's an infant crying in the corner. Are yeah. we using that? Yeah. Is well, that yeah, need to look after it? that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there any um, aspect of this band that you or this uh, of of Chris that you think isn't um isn't talked about enough it could be part of his character or part of his um performance um i think the 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 thing that i usually tell people that surprises people most is when i mentioned even as i was saying there to you that that it was he was on top of this like a multi-instrumentalist player that 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 these records were you know you think of the complexity of of Soundgarden. A lot of this was him in a room by himself, recording on a four track, putting things down. I I I think if you're if you're someone who's into, a lot of people get turned away because they think of Cornell as the big voice, mm. the big voice in the heavy band. Mm. If if you kind of take that away and think of it more in a like the awe that you feel when you listen to like an Elliot Smith record mm. and you go, oh, Jesus Christ, this guy was, you know, mm. shaping all of this stuff. Like that that's not to be reductive to Soundgarden because they're the best players in the world. And, yeah. you know, they, they, they wrote things as well. But I think there's a level of brilliance that's overlooked mm. um, from a songwriting perspective. It's not, it's not just the fellow who, who, who stepped up to the mic and could sing like that. Like, mm-hmm. imagine coming into band practice and someone's like, here's my four track, it's Black Hole Sun, I've played every instrument. What are we doing, like coffee? Or do you, yeah. want, do you want a break? Are you, are you, like, because to me, the, 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 I, I feel that song is like, kind of like the end of grunge in a weird way, mm-hmm. yeah. because I think it's kind of the antithesis of what everybody was doing. It's this kind of psychedelic, heavy, Beatles-y, metally everything just squashed into it's like one Doom thing it's like Doom Beatles almost isn't it it's like Doom, yeah. Doom Beatles, Beatles yeah. Like, yeah. if you've ever heard their cover of Helter Skelter yeah um, and they do a cover of Come Together as well like it it, it it's very much that and I, I I don't know where the scene would have went from that mm. do you know what I mean like I think that was really it seems like a logical conclusion to the scene as it was yeah, yeah like and I, I think it makes sense that like because I always detach Pearl Jam from that because you know Pearl Jam are more kind of more sound like they're in the vein of The Who and Neil Young and people like that yeah, yeah they're, class, they're always more classic rock yeah and it's yeah. not it's not reductive it's just mm. different you know but when mm. when you look at these sort of things but like to think that you had an artist like that that managed to be on the ground floor of one of the biggest movements 
in mm. music history somehow manages to not be the star. Um, yeah, despite <laughs> seeming like the obvious, like the obvious <laughs> yeah. star. Like wasn't Sub Pop formed to put out a Soundgarden EP? Yeah, yeah. It was the Screaming Life Pop yeah. EP was you know, um, and then what I find super interesting is that he then managed to pull in new audiences repeatedly with completely different things. With so many people I knew who, much like me, you know, got into it because they heard Audio Slave mm-hmm. or they heard the James Bond track mm. or, you know, they heard Temple of the Dog or, you know, my one friend who heard Scream and was like, that's really good. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> damn right. Me and you, John, we're going to listen to Scream and the hell with all the rest of you people. But, but even that is an interesting failure. Like the... Mm. The the story around that is so typical of his unending inquisitiveness. Apparently, he was in the middle of recording an album and he got a call that said that Timbaland wanted to remix a song. He didn't really know who that was. Yeah. But he said, like, well, if you're going to remix a song, why don't I just play it and we'll do 10 songs and we'll do it for the crack. Yeah. And he did it. And then that was it. And then, you know you know you you had issues with uh, or pe- people had issues with that because he was a big fan of kneecapping his own you know his own fame but like if that had happened five years later with Kanye producing mm. or that had happened like the idea is good mm. do you know it the the he even re-recorded loads of the songs as he had written them mm. and they're good songs it just didn't it didn't mesh the way people wanted it but I love that it never became a uh, he never became boring. He never became that a thing would come out and you'd be like, oh, here's another fucking Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like, there's artists I love and I just don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't care about what their next record's going to be. Mm-hmm. Never happened with him. Even if it was a failure, it was always an interesting failure. It was yeah. always a worthy of artistic Consideration. Consideration, least, even yeah. if it didn't work. And that's, t- to me, that's, that's the thing that I think is underappreciated. Just the ridiculous span of styles and tunings and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and rhythms and, and that this, this person managed to do and touch so many massive acts like the, the before I run this podcast into five hours long, mm-hmm. um, the, there's, a, there's a really fun story about when they were recording Temple of the Dog and um, apparently Hunger Strike, which became the big single, um, was only meant to be an interlude. It was meant to be like a minute and 10 seconds or something. And at the time, obviously, Andrew Wood had passed away and they were like, well, the band didn't want to break up. So they were trying to figure out what they were going to do. And they were auditioning singers. And Eddie Vedder was in the studio as they were practicing for Temple of the Dog. And Chris Cornell apparently went out for a smoke and Eddie Vedder was like, humming the hunger strike song because he'd been sitting waiting listening to hear it and he said like do you want to come in and do it with me Mm -hmm. and people talk about it like you know it was this solidifying moment he kind of took him you know under his wing or whatever and it's true because this people like like you know Kurt Cobain had Soundgarden stickers on his guitar on their Mm -hmm. first record like he they were an act they weren't gonna mock you know they were an act Mm -hmm. that were kind of had a lot of credit and part of it as I grow up, it's like the one part of it, it's like, well, he kind of formed Pearl Jam there, which is ridiculous. Like, you know what I mean? It was kind of, he, he gave this guy a track on, on, on this, whatever. But on top of it, I think it was like a little, like almost 
almost for Andrew Wood as well, that he was like, he didn't want his band to not have a band yeah. and was kind of like, this'll work, yeah. I bet. And just the idea that in the background, he was thinking of other bands and how can we, you know what I mean? How can we do this? You know, he'd be on stage in Nirvana t-shirts when Bleach came out because they mm. were the bigger band mm. and they never got the same it, it was reaction. Kind of like do you know what I mean? Like uh, people never supported him in yeah. anything. Yeah. But... It sounds like he's, he's kind of like a steward of the scene, like of just to me, kind that's, of like yeah. look, taking care of it and making sure that it continues to grow and not stay the same. Yeah as it was you know and I, I think that's fascinating to anyone who's interested in music yeah I think like if you're a music fan this is an artist that will repay you the interest you put in mm. you know it's not an easy gate you're not gonna get a similar thing all the way through probably why in cases fans could be dicks because he's alienated them mm -hmm. record on record on record mm. but if you're actually paying attention the people who actually love him you know are obviously wonderful you um, um but like the people who've really paid attention to why his career is interesting i think just get multitudes back from them from musician point ship from a songwriting point ship mm -hmm. from a vocalist perspective mm. point ship's not a word i, 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 I heard you I'm say point ship and i was like wow great word <laughs> and then i was like oh no i don't think it is a word my, but i like it my I new album is called point ship, point ship by the way yeah, uh, yeah. you heard it here first everybody <laughs> But that would Great. be yeah. that would be what yeah. I would. Um, that seems like a perfect place to leave it. It does, yeah. yeah. Please tell yourself. Um, you so um, yeah, you can you can find me on uh, you can find me on Twitter and Spotify under uh, under Carlo Maliaco. Thankfully, I'm the only one. Yeah. So uh, there's very there's very few. It's like oh, you mean the Dundalk Maliacos? It's like, <laughs> yeah. No, no. So if, uh, if 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 you can find me, uh, that's me. Um, I've got. I've got a record out um, and a few songs on Spotify there. And if you have an interest uh, and want to keep up to date with that, I'm currently mixing my second record. It's uh, hopefully to come out uh, this year in some form. Um, so pay attention to those. You'll hear songs appearing here and there. Yeah. Cool. Andrea? Oh, um, I, um, I have a podcast called My Favourite Album. Um, it is... Uh, Tall Tales podcast and two seasons of that are out now the third uh, will will come and I'm also weekly on the Nile Nine podcast and I'm off social media <laughs> so yeah Alan <laughs> uh, I am Alan underscore McGuire everywhere uh, Juvenalia is Juvenalia underscore pod on Twitter Juvenalia pod on Instagram we have a Patreon where we do bonus episodes where we talk about what we started and finished recently uh, so it's just talking about more modern stuff, basically, uh, an excuse to talk to each other about modern stuff. Yeah. Um, excuse for me to try and convince Alan to watch Stranger Things. Yes. In the last episode, I did really you not tried. just show him a picture of our beautiful boy? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, we'll, oh, we'll do that right after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the big thing I got from Andrea being on the show is the Pat Finnerty. Uh, show. Oh, oh yeah, I also got Carlo into pop yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so much so that at a gig I beatoed. So. Oh, you did, you beatoed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big yeah. Oh man. Anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, go watch his "Why Does This Song Stink" video about Weezer. It's, yeah. Um, maybe one of the greatest video essays ever. Yeah, it's so possibly. moving. Yeah, yeah. I cried. I've watched it twice. Cried both times. Yeah. Um, thank you, Dean McDonald, for artwork. Thank you, Fergal and Paul Tales for having us and recording this. And we will see you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye.